and welcome to another episode of the Friday Tech Roundup Roundup, where we look at news from the week commencing the 9th of August. Uh, with me is Andy Tebb um, and myself, Eloisa, and we will be running through the, yeah, the news pieces that came up on this week's Friday Tech Roundup. So, first one first, we have Forbes has ranked what they call the best, brightest and most valuable companies in the private cloud sector. Now, what we thought would be helpful for those listening, um, we appreciate you're not all techies. Um, So, Andy, can you just give us a rundown of what the difference is between a private cloud sector and the public cloud sector, please? I I was not well worded (laughs) in this Forbes article. So um, the traditional difference between a private and public cloud, remember we said the other week that the cloud is just someone else's data center, that's the joke. Correct. So public public cloud, available to everyone, think AWS, Azure, all that good stuff. Private cloud is basically your own data center scaled out and you pretend it's a cloud. Now that is very harsh, that's very simplistic. There are private cloud solutions like Pivotal that give you on-premises cloud attributes, fundamentally not what we think of as cloud because it isn't ultra scalable, you know, infinitely in massive air quotes and all that. Because it's constrained by the fact that you've got your own data center and there is limited space there. Um, In this context, what they meant was cloud companies, some of which are public in massive air quotes, as in on the stock market, and some of which are private, as in privately funded shareholders, venture capital, angel investors, that kind of thing, but not publicly traded companies. So Forbes kind of went, biggest private cloud providers. And I was like, what, is that like Pivotal and no one else? (laughs) And then went into it and it was like, oh, right, all the cloud companies like offering cloud type services, but privately traded. So when they said private cloud, that's what they meant. But the wording, if I was like, a Spanish person going, oh, right, I'll read this article in my English. I'd be like, what? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so Semantics that's are two everything. flavors of private and public there. Yeah. Fair enough. So we shouldn't be surprised to see the likes of Canva, HashiCorp and GitLab uh, close to the top of that list. Absolutely. I mean, they're the big names. Uh, the, I did feel very out of touch, though, which is a bit naff given my job because I was going through this list and there were loads that I was like, never heard of you. Absolutely. Um, yes, ditto. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go through a load of research. So, Favourite, though, top list, um, Stripe. Absolutely brilliant company. Yeah. They're, um, so I use them a lot um, as a cheat. So they're a payments provider. Okay. They're, they're really interesting. What they do is they um, they don't offer the cheapest service. They just offer the easiest service. Now, as someone who works with banking, whenever new regs come out around payments, I literally go to their website because they explain them to their customers in the simplest language. Helpful. So yep. I then <laughs> use that to go off and do the research and think about the implications that I want to. But I think that speaks to their mission, which is to make everything as simple as possible for people. And they recognize that people merchants aren't going to go for the cheapest solution necessarily but actually the easiest one but speaking to a guy called Chris Skinner who is someone we use he's a he's a he's a thought leader in the sort of financial services industry and he, he, he fits really well with our ethos because he is not your typical financial services sort of thought leader um, he's generally quite out of step with people but he's sadly often right um and uh you know he's he's very he's also known for being very frank 
but he's a massive fan of Stripe as well. That simplicity model built from the ground up to be able to do what they need. Yep. So it was really nice to see a company at the top that kind of embodies their values throughout yeah. in everything they do about simplicity. But the list overall, there, there was a huge number where I was like, I'm clearly going to have to go and do some research. <laughs> yeah. And as well, disappointingly, as we were discussing before, very few uh, leaders who are women. Very few. Well, um, I think, what, six out of the hundred? Mm. They say in that we do have Canva, who's led by Melanie Perkins, and she's made it in the top three. So it's fantastic to see some women up there, but there are other problems within the industry, not just from women making it into these top hundred lists, but also receiving funding in the first place. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just around the tech and it's not just around our industry, but it's like how much does gender, you know, preconception and bias play a role in going and dealing with big funding rounds, you know, when you have huge amounts of research to show, yeah, there's Mm. a disadvantage towards women in those funding rounds to the point where there are actually, you know, women-specific rounds nowadays just to make sure that there is some um, equality in that. So it's not just about ensuring quality. It's like the number of good ideas that get missed. Yeah, also also that. Um, Anyway. Anyway, um, (laughs) moving on to uh, number two, we have Microsoft is protesting after Amazon won a $10 billion NSA cloud contract. Now, the irony of this is obviously it comes after Amazon won, no, sorry, after Microsoft won a Defense Department's $10 million Jedi cloud services contract um, a few years back. So it feels very tit for tat. Um, Both argued uh, that there was bias within the contract um, being awarded, obviously from Microsoft's point of view, it was that Trump got in the middle of it and obviously has a veto against um, Jeff Bezos. In this instance, Amazon, sorry, Microsoft is saying that Amazon kind of, again, cheated the system a little bit, um, or that there wasn't a proper investigation done into the contract before it was awarded. it kind of feels like, whilst it is super important, you know, obviously we're not looking at small numbers here, but if they need to move off cloud or onto cloud as soon as possible, surely all this is doing is delaying that ability for the defence um, departments to be able to make that move. And it feels really counterintuitive. And I know that the Jedi class services has now been split up. I think five different um, cloud companies have now been awarded that contract. So are we likely to see something similar over with NSA or are we likely just to see a long legal battle? Although I think they said- I don't know what procurement person decided that you needed to issue a $10 billion contract for cloud services. I can imagine there is some rationale for it. I can imagine some edge cases where that's possible, hmm. but it kind of feels counterintuitive. Like If you're going to build that many services, you're basically just outsourcing someone building your data center. Yep. That, that's like, you know, build me 100 data centers, get cracking, all for you, right? Like, unless they want to move everything in one foul swoop to the cloud which feels like it's a bit crazy because you'll be like literally getting trucks full of storage, taking that and moving it to where you need it. Yeah. You'd be like, because it must be a, a you know, boatload of historical stuff. It just feels crazy. It's like, why not just issue it in multiple contracts and stuff? And whatever the weather, if you don't do proper procurement with yeah. equal weighting and transparency, then you are going to run into trouble. And then, like, you know, think Garden Bridge in London. And then, finally, when it's a £10 billion contract, of course they're going to contest it. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> yes. You're going to spend, like, 
three, four million dollars in legal fees, baby, for the outside chance they can win. Great, yeah. it's ten billion dollars. Yeah. The economies of scale that's going to give them. It's just, it just feels like, I mean, they're not building bridges or a high-speed rail line where you've kind of got to commit to more than a mile of track at a time. <laughs> why, why issue a contract for $10 billion? That's so it's true, madness. so true, yeah. I never really thought about it that way, but you're so right, though. Like, and also, there's a hell of a lot of trust into one company to make yeah. sure that, that this goes smoothly all the way through. I mean, you, and, and the worst bit is, you're not going to get economies of scale. Like, if you go to AWS, Microsoft's slightly different. I mean, AWS is weird because of just the sheer market share and the volume. But you can issue a contract that big that's going to make them act in these ways, yeah. same as Microsoft are. They're going to contest this out. But given the scale of them already, if you, if you add $10 billion to that, that's literally incremental on what they've already got. So that it's not going to make their overall offering cheaper. Yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> it's just, anyway, so yeah, it just felt like, I don't know why you even went down that route. This was utterly predictable. Yeah. Hey ho. There we go. The, a new lens on the news. This is what, exactly what we're here for. Um, <laughs> case in number three. Again, this one seems, again, not really much of a surprise, but it's interesting to see the figures. A third of financial firms have accelerated their use of AI to detect money laundering. Uh, in the country, the National Crime Agency estimates that money laundering costs the country's economy $24 billion each year. And from what I was reading about this, it, there's a lot of pressure for these financial firms to be using AI, not just from internal pressures, but also from uh, authority and regulatory bodies. And what they're saying is actually the, the data detection that they have in place already is so static in comparison to AI um, machine learning models that actually it's just foolish to kind of not adopt a more automatic, a more... Um, AI gives them that extra level of being able yeah. to detect at scale, whereas the more traditional data detection models seem to not give them that freedom. I think that's what I was trying to say, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're pulling together multiple traditional strands in our Friday Tech Roundup review, but um, uh, I'll make reference to being very old again. Um, <laughs> But apart when I started in banking, they used to have these operational finance teams and you give them a 5,000 page report every day. I am not joking. Jeez. And they would sit there with a ruler scanning down the page and they'd read it like Sherlock Holmes in a Hollywood film. <laughs> and they were, these people were like able to spot patterns that were out of place. Like they would go, they'd go down with the ruler and they'd go, and they'd circle something and just carry on going. And they'd get through all 5,000 pages and then go back and look at what they'd circled. This was amongst a team of people. But the reason I knew that was a problem was because I wanted to move the mainframe uh, from the UK to the US. And when that report first came off, yeah. it was in the wrong order. And uh, to say they, like, it changed order the report and say they lost it was uh, quite an understatement. So, but also the fact to... it took that long for you to realise there was a mistake here. Like, surely just the fact there was a paper, a ruler, and I'm imagining a highlighter would suggest that perhaps this isn't the most secure way to go about this. Well, the problem was it worked. So these people kind of knew the report. Like, <laughs> and, and actually what we're doing now is recreating that with AI, that ability to spot patterns. Yeah. So these guys have lived that report for literally years. So they could, they just had the feel for it. It was like a cabbie with the knowledge. And that worked, you know? It yeah. was like, that's out of place. That still, still doesn't feel we were confident, but, but uh, <laughs> you know. Well, well, the problem 
works, like I say, it works. And then we got rid yeah. of those types of people, yeah. and now we have AI to do that pattern recognition. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's great. You know, you look at a lot of banks doing the, there was a really good video actually by um, that I coincidentally spotted on LinkedIn yesterday uh, by the head of data at uh, NatWest, just doing a sort of two camera, just quick five minutes from home talking about what they were doing with AI and ML. And again, it was around money laundering. That's really cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually, he's a really nice guy. We did some work with him. He, he's kind of really passionate about data. There are third party products like FeedSign and stuff that do this really well. I mean, I hate AI at the moment. I just think it's pointless, but actually those very focused targeted use cases, things like FeedSign, yeah. work really well for it. And um, and I think the algorithms to spot this are much better and more proven than a lot of the ones that I have a problem with. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I laugh at this costing us 24 billion. It actually costs us way more. Like if you look at the London property market, you look at the New York property market, there's yeah. a reason that Londoners can't buy a flat, right? It's because there's a bunch of, like the real estate market in those cities will be nothing without money laundering, right? If you're like a Russian oligarch who wants to offshore their cash, you buy a load of flats in London. That's what you do. Yeah. Those are the additional costs that go along with money laundering. Sorry, I'll stop being so dystopian. Anyway. <laughs> Let's you know what? This adds the colour to the podcast. We love it, Terps. We love it. Um, uh, let's talk about A levels because I think they're better and they're much more topical. <laughs> let's do that. Yes. Um, so a new report came out from Computer Weekly that showed that the number of students taking A level computing rose in 2021 to nearly 14,000 compared with 12,428 the previous year. What's most exciting about this is that um, the number of girls grew at the same time. However, what we are still seeing is that boys are outnumbering them five to one. Um, so there's still a lot of progress to go. But what it is showing is that the attention that's being paid now to try and encourage girls to take on STEM subjects at school is starting to pay off a little bit and hopefully we start to see the repercussions of that in workplaces what in the next five seven ten years um, as they kind of move through university um, degrees yeah but I also think that you know we need to do we, we can't wait that long so we need to carry on doing things like the outreach we need to do things like the coding camps the Absolutely. academy all that good stuff you know if you listen to this some great really good podcast uh, that Ben did uh, on the Tech Cube podcast about US yep. which was um, really interesting insights from Lucia and Bath about um, you know their experience in IT very UX but also talking about other entry points to IT and it felt um, like it had a real women in tech um, lens to it and I yeah. think I think we've got to continually do outreach so it's not just about A-levels and say that's it that's your last chance yeah um, I think getting getting people from other you know I mean I can do IT you know I'm, I'm considered really good at what I do I mean I, I still do, do I still don't do IT and I'm in IT so you know exactly <laughs> right so I think I think we need to give that message that it's not the kind of thing that you have to have gone to university for or gone into A levels you can self-study and get through we do need to do better though with STEM it's, um with, with STEM at A level though and there needs to be more outreach and I think getting the role models like ECS does out into um, schools at GCSE to say, yeah. hey, this is open to people who might look like you. Yeah. I, I, that's a great shout. So, you know, good that it's improving. I, I think just still woefully underrepresented and, and we as leaders in IT just keep, need to keep doing more. Absolutely. I completely agree. And again, I fell down the trap. 
even like minutes ago and suggested that you know the degree level was the way you had to go forward and I think one of the things that I learned when I was at um, university so I actually studied law uh, I now work mm. in marketing and again fell into technology because my clients happened to be in technology it wasn't actually something I chose to do but when yeah. I was at law school what we were competing up against um, you know every other law student in the country namely but also scientists which just blew my mind at the time but they said you know if you look at it scientists are very analytical people they are taught to analyze data that comes their way to come up with a conclusion which is exactly what lawyers do right if you're a barrister you're you're trying to decipher all the information from both sides uh, stress test kind of both arguments and then come to a logical conclusion so it was super interesting for me that when you you're taking up a subject actually your people seem to assume you have to take one direction and what I learned at university more than anything is that I remember speaking to a barrister who had been a builder his whole life and he ended up yeah. uh, now being a criminal barrister and he absolutely loves what he does I once interviewed a silk who is one of the highest barristers um, within the country who every summer would take herself over to France to help rebuild a French castle in the authentic way learning how to do um, chiseling to make sure the bricks were as authentic as possible yeah. um, so some amazing walks of life and I think that if my experience from the law industry can be in any way reflected into the tech industry, it is that like you can come from anywhere and it's not necessarily seeing yourself, although I do think that's really important, but I think it's noticing characteristics in yourself that could also be super helpful in the world of technology, but could you, things that could excite you, you know, just because um, you don't necessarily have techie kind of above your head, like, you know, a gaming station that you have to, you know, fit every profile possible. Actually, what I you're... To, I hate to break it to you, Ali, but we all have that. It's just we're on the spectrum. Oh. So you are a little bit geeky, right? Oh, but absolutely. You're, you're right, you're right absolutely. Yeah, but that's the thing. So, like, you know, even my little bit of geeky is enough to get me in tech. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. love what I do. And I, I, I'm completely amazed every day about what my colleagues are up to. Um, so, absolutely, if you are thinking about taking up STEM, just just have a look into it and just see if there's anything in there that excites you. It could be a real niche subject. You could find that you love the subject as a whole. Um, but as you absolutely said, I think we need to be doing more just to show that there are more routes into technology. And actually, you're not just out there coding. There are so many other avenues that you could adopt. Um so absolutely. you could end up coding. As and you well. could absolutely nothing wrong I'm, with coding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean you could go down that ultra technical route. I mean I yeah. think I think um you know, when I first started work there was always conversation about you won't be with the same company for twenty years and you've got to get used to moving and you're like, Well yeah, duh, yeah. obviously. And then um but nowadays it's more actually you can have multiple different careers, right? You could be a bricklayer, you could then be a barrister, you could then be someone who works in tech. And yeah. you can start and move over these things. And I actually think that tech is particularly strong for it. And I think those different backgrounds. We went through a period where everyone started becoming homogenous, mm-hmm. you know, computer studies at university people and actually going broader I think has brought back some of what originally made IT very diverse yep. and and those differing perspectives you know I used to work with guys who one guy best team I ever worked in guy used to be an electrician in a Sheffield steel mill another guy used to be a translator at the UN in Rome there was me the sort of pikey ex warehouse <laughs> man there was a guy who used to be a code breaker at Bletchley oh, wow. you know I mean yeah this and this breadth and this diversity of different people made for one of the strongest teams I've ever worked in. Yeah. And, and and that, I think we're starting to see some of that come back. So I actually think if you've spent five years doing something that you kind of liked but didn't really feel passionate about and then go, oh, maybe IT is interesting, 
do it because you'll be bringing something extra to the party that we haven't got. Absolutely. We, we need the inclusion. We need the diversity um, in that. And actually, I just like to leave this point here by saying you are at a part of history where the Big Bang Theory made you cool. So um, enjoying technology and all those STEM subjects, science, uh, chemistry, all that sort of fun stuff. Like you're at a point of history where that is cool. So embrace it. And uh, if you fancy giving it a go, definitely give it a go. I couldn't agree more. There is a reason <laughs> why... Um, there is a reason why girls find a five foot seven ball guy charming. <laughs> it's, it's all because I work in IT. That's definitely it. <laughs> I love the fact that the the image you portray of yourself on a podcast. I can only imagine what people are seeing in their head. One day, hopefully, they get to meet you and uh... <laughs> there's, there's a LinkedIn photo. They can have a, an idealised. Have a bit of anyway, a scoop. So, last uh, not last topic, fifth topic. Fifth topic: ransomware demands and payments hit new records. The average ransom paid by victim organisations has increased by eighty-two percent. That seems high uh, since 2020 to a record $570,000. They also, Unit 42 also noted the increase in surveillance of double extortion tactics. That's where you are stung by more than one hostage move. And ransom gangs are stealing and threatening to leak data in addition to encrypting it as a shaman tactic. I mean, back in the day, you just, you know, you had the occasional pirate raid and you were done with it. This seems to be... And actually, I do feel sorry for a lot of these IT firms because the cost and investment to be able to keep up with a body of people who are determined to attack you 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. Whereas back in the day, you had one ship raid, you know, if you were unlucky because you happened to meet crossing the ocean. And I feel that, like, you know, it just seems like a very different time. Um, and it's, it's yeah. you know, the I mean, people... It depends, it depends who you are, right? It, it, Absolutely, if bank, yeah. yeah. If, you're, if you're a bank, it comes with a territory, right? You Absolutely. You're securing your branches, now you need to secure your website. Okay. If you're my mum, that's at home, <laughs> yeah. and you get a ransomware attack because they encrypted your hard drive, never going to happen, by the way. I've got her <laughs> automated patching forever. But Good to know, get that, You're going to pay it, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like... I, uh, there were a couple of things with this story. One, I'm, all, I'm immediately suspicious when someone says there's an 86% interest uh, increase because you're like, from what to what? Yeah. So we saw a lot of ransomware attacks where the payment was via crypto. If someone asks you, I mean, oh, yeah, in fairness, I'm, I'm pretty impressed if my mum could figure out how to buy crypto. <laughs> You know, I think these ransomware attacks are only going to work if they've got a fairly lengthy FAQ on how to get onto Coinbase. But yeah. Fundamentally, some people have got run, have got crypto, and will pay for it. I mean, there, there was there was the old joke about like back in the early noughties, uh, what's cryptocurrency for? Well, for libertarians to lose money. <laughs> what is it for now? It's essentially for people to pay for ransomware. You know, I mean, it's, essentially those are the use cases. And I can feel the howls coming from the IT community. Yeah, a big chunk of them, my friends. But essentially. You know, we are going through a period of tulip bulb mania about crypto. Yeah. And what's the actual use case? Well, they're not good enough to actually be useful for banking at the moment. So fundamentally, it's so people can collect ransoms yeah. in a non-trackable way. Although there is a public ledger that shows who got it, so maybe they're not thinking it through brilliantly. <laughs> Ultimately, though, it's like it went up eighty-six percent. Is ransomware a problem? Eighty-two percent. Yeah, yeah. But so, this is so, thing. Yeah, but it's from where to where and. Yeah, I think, I think what's shocking though is that like it is happening and we're all aware of it. But as you mentioned earlier, it's the banks 
they're fine. They're, they're the ones, you know, and if, again, a few of them have fallen victim to this, but on the whole, they're fine. What they've said is actually the ones are attacking the, like the low-hanging fruit. You know, it's, a, it's the mid-sized firms, it's the smaller firms that perhaps can't invest as much as they need to in their cybersecurity, um, but they still have the same risk and they're still under the same regulations and the same threats from regulatory bodies that if they don't get this in place, they'll obviously be fine. So they get fined twice. And I kind of feel that you look at these and, you know, maybe, obviously we spoke about um, bounties last week, maybe it's because these bigger firms have the ability to entice people to, to do it legally. So come and hack us, but, but do it through our means and we'll pay you handsomely without any yeah. kind of criminal record. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting that, again, it's, it's the ones that we, not we hope they'd attack, but the ones that I think, you know, would manage the attack a lot better are those which apparently are the, they're not going after. It's the ones that are the middle-sized groups um, who are kind of falling victim to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there is a very ugly tendency to victim blame around this stuff. Yeah. Like, Alok Mate sent me uh, articles around someone who fell for, you know, phishing scam or something. They'll go, what an idiot. And you're like, oh, hang on, they're the victim of a crime. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same in this case, right? Oh, well, you should have patched your server. No, no, no. I wouldn't blame my neighbour if he got burgled because he happened to leave his upstairs window open. I'd be like, I'm sure he regrets that, but yeah. ultimately he's still the victim of a crime. Yeah. And there, there is a nasty element uh, sometimes that, that blames these companies for not being 100% patched. Yeah. There's always a window and there are exploits that you don't know about until they get published. Ultimately, yeah. we need to de-romanticise some of these hackers. We also need to take it more seriously. Yeah. In this country, we're rubbish at cybersecurity, <laughs> like governmentally, yeah. and we need to invest more money in it. You know, apparently the government's hiring 20,000 new police officers, new in massive air quotes, because it kind of replaces the ones they got rid of. So <laughs> maybe some of those should be in cyber. Maybe they should think about cyber. Well, say, there, there was a report last week that suggested that a lot, uh, what, more than half of the computers that the uh, government use are more than 30 years old or like the systems that we use are yeah. more than 30 years old so there, there is no way that they're ever going to be um, sophisticated enough to be able to deal with the cyber security risks of today so they're also not helping themselves um, yeah I mean so, there's a whole argument about does that make them more difficult to hack if they're 30 years old because no yeah. one's looking for them right Macs aren't safer it's just Microsoft's bigger and that's why people go after it but that, that's a discussion for another day. Yeah. yeah. But part of me feels, though, and uh, we can end on this, but part of me feels that if you're going to be a baddie, at least give the company that you've just, you know, um, done a big threat to some advice. I feel that's the nicest thing that you can do. So fine, you know, do what you're going to do because you're going to do it anyway, but maybe well, leave well, them a nice little note about yeah, how they, they could do better. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, Ellie, they're not nice people. They're horrible <laughs> no. people. <laughs> but I'm giving, them, I'm giving them away here to kind of remedy some of the bad actions. You know, if they want to take it, they can take it. If they don't want to, I will continue I living up, in my naive world. So. I grew up with a bunch of villains. They're not nice people. <laughs> no. But they look good in a, uh, in a black mask, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, hang on, no, yeah. sorry. That's, uh, that's sorry. That's completely different. <laughs> Um, we will finish there with a couple of shout outs so um, ECS actually published a blog this week about what AI actually is so if you're, you've been interested kind of learn a bit more about that jump over to the ECS website that was written by our very own Louise Fenn um, we're also recruiting for our next ECS Digital Engineering Academy so if Tebs and I have convinced you to give tech a go do look into that it's a fully paid three month intense training course that helps fast track individuals into a career in tech you do need to have a little bit of experience but honestly you just need to have the enthusiasm and our oh, desire to learn and trust me we will take you the rest of the way so do you check uh, that out just on that 
it's difficult to convey just how good the academy is by industry standards and how integral a part of the company you become it's real work I think yeah. we've got a ninety. I think everyone bar one person has gone on to be a paid consultant for us and that's because he had to move back to Hungary for family reasons I mean like everyone has um, gone on to be a paid consultant it's just the bollocks apply <laughs> yeah. the cat's pyjamas is what tells me indeed um, there we go and if you're not convinced by us, we do actually have a podcast on the TechU podcast, which goes on about the Academy and talks through about um, kind of what it is, uh, what it does, why it's amazing and why you should sign up. So if you don't believe us, do check that out instead. Other than that, uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of your weeks. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Tech Roundup Roundup. Um, and we look forward to giving you more narrative and conversations next week. Take care. Cheerio.